And this morning, we are going to begin our four-part sermon series for the Christmas season. So I'm kind of excited about that. Anybody else excited about Christmas? Is anybody ready for Christmas? Or is it just, I know I say this every year, it really does feel like it came faster this year than normal. Um, So the sermon series I'm going to call Practicing the Stories of Christmas practicing the stories of Christmas. And I think that's an important thing to say because as great as I think the Christmas holiday season is, Christmas can become for people merely a story that we tell. And it becomes merely nostalgic. Now, while certainly it's a story we tell and it's a story of the distant past of Christ coming into the world, Well, certainly it's a story of our past family histories. We might think of where we grew up as a child and and maybe the snowy Christmases we spent back on the East Coast or our families and this situation. So that's all good, but the Christmas season is not meant to stay in the past. It's meant to change our lives in the present. And so that's what I want to highlight over these next four Sundays, and that's why I'm calling it Practicing the Stories of Christmas. There's something in these stories that we tell every year that is meant to affect us in the present. And I would say not only are these stories meant to affect us in the present, they're meant to prepare us for the future. So we look back, yes, but in order to look forward. And so what I kind of opted to do, we'll bounce around a little bit. I decided to talk about practicing the stories of Christmas through the lens of the four angelic visitations that we see in the Gospels. Okay, so there's a lot of different angles I could have taken. Here's the one I chose. I was curious about who the angels appeared to and what their life situations were. Because, of course, we have the Christmas story, kind of the overarching story, where it doesn't matter who you are or what time you live. Here's the Christmas story. It's kind of this overarching meta-narrative, they call it, fancy word, for the big story. But underneath that, we have our individual lives. And we each are in a season of life. Some of us can be very happy and full of joy. Other people are sad. Some people are maybe somewhere in the middle. So what I want to acknowledge, what I was fascinated by, is even though you have this big story of what God is doing in Christ, in the incarnation, the Son of God's coming into the world, and yet that doesn't erase or eliminate real life. And so there's four angelic visitations, and I want to look at each of those over these four weeks and kind of examine what the Christmas story meant for those who are being spoken to by these angels. And so this morning, we're going to look at the angel's visit to Zacharias. Then next week, we'll look at the angel's visit to Mary. And then we'll look at the angel's visit to Joseph. And then we'll look at the angel's visit to the shepherds. And we'll be doing it through that lens of practicing the stories of Christmas. And so this morning, we're going to pay attention to what the Christmas story meant for Zacharias and therefore what it can mean for you and I today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 25. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. And please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. 
There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Avia. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we do just pray that we would be able to receive the gift of Christmas this year. And I pray that you would give us eyes of faith, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand that the true meaning and gift of Christmas is not in the gifts under the tree, it's not in the houses in which we celebrate them, nor is it even the people that we love that we often gather with. The chief and greatest gift of Christmas is your presence. It is you near us. It is Emmanuel. It is that you are promising to be with us and for us in the person of Jesus. And so I just pray you would open our eyes and prepare us 
to hear these instructions, these things we can do in order to participate in what you're doing in and through this great celebration we call Christmas. We pray for a blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's five lessons. There's five things we can practice from this story of Zechariah. Number one, start a new tradition that honors the Holy Spirit's work in your life today. Start a new tradition that honors the Holy Spirit's work in your life today. Uh, One of the biggest mistakes we make in regard to our celebration of Christmas is when we think of it merely as remembering the past. And of course, that's partly what tradition endeavors to do. It, it endeavors to hold on to that which has come before. And that's not a bad thing. Tradition is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing. But whenever God does a new thing in the Bible, he tends to break with tradition in order to do it. And he actually is doing that right here in this visit by the angel. He is actually breaking with tradition. Luke gives us a few details about John and his lineage, John the Baptist, the child being promised. There's two key things here. First, he tells us that Zacharias was a priest, descendant from priests. That would normally mean, by tradition, that John should be a priest. That's what he's supposed to be. If they follow tradition, he's not going to be John the Baptist who goes and hangs out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing. No, that means he he should be in the temple. That's where he belongs. And the text gives us the detail that not only was Zacharias a priest, but and there's no requirement in the law for this to be the case, but Elizabeth was also a descendant of priests of the line of Aaron. So in other words, why is Luke giving us these details about who John's parents were? And he's giving them to us because he's showing that when God is doing a new thing, he often breaks with tradition. Not only is Zacharias and his role as a priest enough to say John should be a priest, but if there were any doubt, that John should be a priest as far as tradition, human tradition can tell us, the fact that Elizabeth descends from Aaron is like, it's screaming out, he is meant to be a priest. But we know that God calls John to have the ministry of a prophet, not a priest. He is a prophet like unto the Old Testament prophets, so much so that he's even spoken of in terms of the figure of Elijah. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. God says, no, he will not be a priest according to your tradition. He will be a prophet according to my call. Secondly, tradition would say that John's name would not be John. John's name should most likely be Zacharias. That should be his name because that's his father's name. And if not his father's name, it should have been somebody's name somewhere back in their tradition. But that is not so. As a matter of fact, later in chapter 1, the text makes this very clear. There's an exchange. Um, Zacharias is still mute. He's unable to speak. 
during Elizabeth giving birth, and so they ask what the name is going to be, and Elizabeth says it's John, and they're like, no, it, it can't be John. So they go to Zacharias and ask him, and here's what it says in Luke 1, 59 through 63. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Tradition. You are breaking with tradition. No one of your relatives is called that name. So they made a sign to his father. They ignored the mom said, well, you obviously got it wrong. You can't be doing that. You're breaking tradition. So let's go to Zacharias. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And when he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. They marveled. They're astounded because tradition is being broken. And I just want to encourage you that all traditions, if you follow them back to the past, were new at some point. God did a new thing. As traditional as, say, Passover or Pesach is in the Hebrew community, at one time it was a brand new thing. Never done before. And I just want to encourage you this Christmas. I'm encouraging my family as well. Create a new tradition. Engage in a new tradition. Acknowledge that God is doing something new. Because many times we find that though Christmas rolls around again as it always has our entire lives, yet we are not in the same place. We might be celebrating in a new home. You've left the old one. You may have had some family members move on. There could be disagreements. These are one of the things that come up in life. Many times at holidays, people... You have to go see people they've been arguing with or fighting with or maybe they expect somebody to be there at the table. There's a seat at the table and that seat is not filled this year. And we can often get so stuck on the past and think, well, that's, but this is the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the way it's always been done. But I just want to encourage you that one of the things that God is doing in Christmas is he's creating something new that we need to add new traditions to our celebration. Allow God to do something new. And I would encourage you, let it be something truly in the spirit of Christmas, where it's not just about us. It's not just about receiving. It's about God and it's about others and it's about giving. Bringing that into your celebration. Maybe it'll be celebrating with someone else who's, who's not your family. They're not your biological family, but they're your spiritual family. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know even for Christians, many times people, their celebration is only for their nuclear family. And it's not for anybody else. But I just want to encourage you, step outside these bounds, not saying get rid of all tradition, but recognize that what God is doing here in this story is a new thing. And that requires some breaking with tradition. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. One of the things God did in His great promises to the patriarchs was He violated the human tradition of the firstborn right. Normally, it was the firstborn child who would receive the greatest blessing. And yet, God was in the habit of purposely skipping over the firstborn. 
and going to the second and saying, I will make my covenant with him. Human tradition would say, no, you can't do that, God. You have to bless the first. That's the way it's done. But God says, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. One of the things Jesus was always getting in trouble for was breaking with tradition. He never broke the word of God, not a single time. He's the only person that actually fulfilled the word of God. But the human traditions that grow up around it, Jesus was often in the habit of breaking. And he even taught you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins or the old wineskin will burst. Whenever God is doing a new thing, we need to become new people. And I often find it's easier just to say no to the new work of God in our lives and say, I just want to remain the same as I always was. The new wine challenges me to change. I cannot receive the new wine of the gospel and what God wants to do this Christmas season unless I change. And for some of us, we, we just don't want to do that. We don't want to change. But I want to encourage you, whatever it might be, and this will call for prayer and some consideration, but it's early, off, uh, early enough in the month of December that you can kind of be thinking about what new thing can we do as a part of our celebration of Christmas that acknowledges, though we're celebrating a story of the past, God wants to do a new thing in our lives today. Number two, trust the Lord to redeem any suffering and shame and turn it to good. Take a look at what Elizabeth says in verses 24 and 25. It says, Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. That word reproach is anedos, and it means disgrace, mocking, blaming, cursing, and loss of standing connected with disparaging speech. Elizabeth is opening up about something that maybe she hadn't even voiced out for many years. We're not given the exact number of years, but this has been many decades that she has lived with being barren, with being childless. And in her words, in her experience, she has been mocked. She has been disgraced. She has been blamed. She's been treated like she has a curse on her life. And she has experienced a loss of standing in the community. And this has gone on for the majority of her adult life. Now, why would she say that? Why would she say she felt this way, that that's her experience, that she felt disgraced, that her whole life was one of disgrace? While it might be kind of hard for modern people to understand, because particularly in the West, we don't quite feel this way about children, back then, having, a children, having children was a sign of God's blessing. It was actually a sign that you are right with God. And they didn't get that, by the way, merely from extra-biblical human tradition. They even got it from the Bible itself. Leviticus 26, 3 and 9 says this, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. 
Deuteronomy 28.11 also says, And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and the produce of the ground. One of the covenant promises. So God weds himself to Israel at Sinai, and he sets before them two paths. We all have two paths to choose from today. There's the path of blessing, and there's the path of cursing. And in the path of blessing, one of the great blessings is that you will be fruitful and multiply. You will have not only children, but many children and many grandchildren. It was actually a sign of God's blessing. We know in the very beginning in Genesis 1.28, God's command to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. So it was a command of God to have children. It was a sign of the covenant promise that you were in right standing with God. It was one of the proofs. Without knowing what the invisible God necessarily felt about a certain person, you could kind of know. Look at their life. And if you see the blessing of children, well then you know they must be right with God. But what we have here is a story of exception to the rule. Though it's true that God makes a general promise of certain kinds of blessing if people will fulfill the covenant, we are shown all throughout Scripture, and it's not a contradiction, we are shown all throughout the Scriptures, including the Old Testament, that there are in fact exceptions to the rule. There are in fact righteous people who suffer. The story of Job. The story of Job itself is a story of such suffering. The very beginning of the story begins, and Job was an upright man, blameless in all his ways. That's the beginning of the story. And then, and then you get all the rest. All the bad things that happened to Job. So Elizabeth lived with this tension. She lived with shame that people put on her for, for not being able to fulfill these blessings. No doubt what this tells us is that the people that saw Elizabeth, though the Bible says she was righteous, they probably behind closed doors, she must be doing something wrong. She must not be honoring the Lord. I don't think she really gave 10% last Sunday. It was probably more like five. You know, it was something Always being said, if she's not blessed in the way we think she should be blessed, then she must be doing something wrong. And even if you know, even if you've searched yourself, even if you've said, maybe I am in sin, maybe I am doing something wrong, and that's why I'm not fruitful, and that's why I'm not blessed, and you agonize over that, and you go to the Lord, and you say like David in the Psalms, search my heart, O God. See if there's any wicked way. And you go to the Lord, and you go to the Lord, and you beg Him to show you. And at the end of the day, you're like, I'm not finding anything that accounts for this. I've found some things, I've confessed those, I've changed those, but I don't see any great sin in my life. And yet, nevertheless, this continues. So verse 6 heightens this tension. Elizabeth was not barren because she was unrighteous, but because she was. Verse 6 says, and they were both righteous before God. 
walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So we see tension in the Bible that the righteous may suffer. But we also see here in this story that God has a purpose for the suffering. One of the hardest things about suffering is believing that it's for nothing. That's one of the hardest things for, for me personally. I mean, suffering's bad enough, but when you believe it's for nothing, there, nothing good is going to come out of this. God's not getting glorified. People aren't being blessed. We're, we're in pain, suffering, maybe physical, emotional, psychological, guilt, shame, all of that. And you, and you say to yourself, there's no purpose. Elizabeth had to live with this for decades. We're told this story in a matter of seconds. She lived this out year after year after year, being faithful to God, being blameless, seeking the Lord, not walking away from Him because He's not blessing you the way you think you should be blessed. I think, as a matter of fact, her suffering for the Lord, for righteousness' sake, only serves to highlight her righteousness. Because the truth is, most people will only serve the Lord when it benefits them. When they can experience it immediately. Oh yeah, I'll follow the Ten Commandments. I'll, I'll do what God says. I'll, I'll give and be kind and be loving and I won't do this sin. But God better bless me. And he better do it right now because I'm not waiting around. But we have a story here of a person who was willing, who truly loved the Lord for the Lord. Not just what he could give her. And so she sought the Lord. But even a righteous person who's genuinely seeking the Lord can still experience suffering. It can still be very difficult. But one of the beautiful things that we see here is after all these years, we discover why. Because God is going to highlight His Gospel, His purpose in His plan for all the ages through Elizabeth. Elizabeth is going to bear the last of the Old Testament prophets. Elizabeth is going to bear the prophet, Jesus said, is greater than all the Old Testament prophets. And it took all these years. If Elizabeth had just been having kids from the get-go like everybody else, it wouldn't have been the sign that God wanted it to be. It's the fact that she suffered so long. It's the fact that it took decades and decades. It's the fact that she's past the point of childbearing. She should not be able to have children. And so it becomes a sign that God is on the move. And He reverses that whole course of Elizabeth's entire life in a moment. It's beautiful. And so I want to encourage anyone here this morning, anyone who's in this Christmas season and you feel like you know, there's all this pressure to be happy, but maybe you're suffering. And maybe there's, there's guilt and shame involved. And I want to encourage you to trust in the Lord. 
Continue to walk in His ways upright and be blameless in His sight. Don't give give up because you're not seeing tangible blessings in your timeline or the timeline of others. That God still sees you. That He has a plan for suffering. And that He will bring it to fruition. It might be that it doesn't happen for many years. It doesn't happen in your time. Indeed, I would even say for some of us, we won't know what the point of that was until we go and we see Jesus face to face. And He reveals to us what our whole life was about in the first place. Revealing all those seemingly tangents and random things and the sufferings that at the time seemed to be without meaning. And it reveals Mike, Dale, Ben, Eddie, Linda. This is what that was all about. I am the grand weaver, the master painter, the grand poet. And this is the story I was telling all along. And here it is to behold. We can trust in the Lord, even during the Christmas season, with our guilt, our suffering, our shame, knowing that God will use it for good. Number three, renew your commitment to prayer. Renew your commitment to prayer. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So the birth of John the Baptist, though in the one sense this is a part of the will of God from all eternity, and yet here the angel says it's an answer to your prayer. And notice, it's not prayers, plural. He didn't say, this, you're, you're a praying person. And so because you're a good praying little boy and a good praying little girl, I'm going to give you this thing over there which you want. No, it's prayer singular. In the Greek, there's actually the definite article. It's the prayer. The prayer of yours. The prayer of your heart. The prayer that you desired more than you desired any other prayer. That prayer, the prayer, has been answered. Now that's amazing to me. Because I can almost guarantee I would have given up that prayer a long time ago. How about you? If you go a year without that prayer that means the world to you, would you keep going? Okay, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I would. A year, I've done that. I've already done that before. I know I can pray for a year. What about five? What about 10? What about 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70? Because that's what we're talking about with Zacharias. He prayed this prayer of faith over and over and over. I mean, I really am challenged to greater faith and commitment to prayer when I see this. Because there's a lot of reasons why I might stop. One of the reasons I might stop is I I just perceive that it's not the will of God. And sometimes God reveals that to us. This this is not what I'm going to do in your life. You're like, okay. We see that in the life of Paul. He tells us three times, I prayed for this thorn in the flesh to go away. And after the third time, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul basically says, okay, that's not my prayer anymore. My prayer is no longer make this go away, Lord. My prayer is, Lord, 
grant me grace to bring glory to you through this. But if it's not that, God hasn't made us clear, I just want to encourage you, don't give up on those prayers that are dear to your heart. Many people would have counseled Zacharias to give up. Like, you're being cruel. You're being cruel to yourself. You're being cruel to your wife. I mean, all you're doing is getting your hopes up. And again, at the end of the day, it's not faith in our faith or prayers in our prayers, but it's faith in God. We believe in a God who can do the impossible. That's the reason I don't give up on prayer. It's not because I'm so sure about what I'm asking for is the right thing or, or whatever else. Sometimes I, I feel that way. Other times, not so much. I'm really not sure. But I believe in a God who can do the impossible. I believe in a God who loves me. I believe in a God who sees my hurt, who sees my guilt, who sees my shame. And I believe in a God who can do something about that. And of course, the, the bigger picture of the gospel says that, that God through Christ is able to reverse the power of both sin and death, triumphing over everything. And if that's the case, we ought to renew our commitment to prayer this Christmas, just as Zacharias did. Number four, examine yourself and confess any doubting of the Lord's goodness and power. Look at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem to be an illegitimate question. But the issue seems to be with his heart, what was underneath. So in other words, again, like we want to be open to questions. Any question a person wants to ask as Christians, we should be willing to listen to. But at the same time, it, there are such a thing as honest and dishonest questions. Somebody may throw a question out, but that's not their real intention. The real intention is not to get the answer to the question. It's to throw you off. It's to get you bogged down in details. It's to change the subject or whatever it is. And if you compare this with Mary, who on the surface seems to ask basically the same question. Zacharias says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. Mary asks, how will this be? For I am, I am a virgin and I have not known a man. So why is it Mary is considered righteous when she asks the question? And why is Zacharias considered unrighteous? And the answer is given by the angel later when he says, because you did not believe. In other words, the issue is not with the question. It's not an illegitimate question. The issue is, I don't believe you. I'm doubting God's ability to do that. And here's my question that springs out of my unbelief. Whereas for Mary, she trusts the Lord. She immediately receives the message. And it's out of faith that she asks the question. So again, we're not against asking questions. I've heard that actually taught where, see, if you want to be a Christian, you're not allowed to ask questions. You just got to obey the Lord. See, Zacharias is in trouble. Well, no, look at Mary. That's obviously not true. So what we want to do is examine ourselves and confess any doubting of the Lord's goodness and power. Now, what's convicting about this, as, as we've already said, Zacharias is a good man. He's a godly man. It said he was righteous and blameless. We just saw he was a man of prayer. 
And he continued to pray. And yet a person who has known the Lord their whole lives, who genuinely and truly, without hypocrisy, walks before Him in righteousness, who is a man or woman of prayer, and yet even they are not perfect in faith. There is no one perfect in faith here this morning. Every single one of us is on a journey from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The journey of faith never stops. We don't say, well, I used to live on faith back when I was young, back when we were newlyweds, back when we first had kids, but now I survive off expertise, savvy, self-determination. I survive off of all these things now. No. The journey for us as Christians is always one of childlike faith every day of our lives. One day at a time is how we live our lives. And that is the way we are meant to live. And so don't take it as an insult at all to say that you lack faith in your life this morning. It's not an insult. Every single one of us lacks faith on some level. We're not saved by the greatness of our faith. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to remember. When Jesus said, if you even had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. And I don't know, have you seen any mountains move lately? What does that say about our faith? It doesn't say that we don't have it. It just says that it's very, very small. We are people of relatively little faith. And so I think this is a part of ongoing discipleship that each of us as believers, we examine our hearts and say, Lord, show me where I lack faith. Show me where I'm trusting in myself, self-sufficiency, my knowledge of the past, reliance on others. How easily can we do that? I rely on other people to do this and to do this, and, and I think I'm trusting in God until the day I don't have these people to lean on, and then I realize I've been leaning on these people more than I've been leaning on the Lord. And then I'm once again thrust, not by choice of my own, but into a place of childlike faith. Where as difficult as it might be, it's also sweet because it's me and Jesus. That's where it all began. And that's where it's all going. So I want to encourage yourself. You may be a wonderful man or woman of God like Zacharias, but even you lack faith. Use this Christmas season as an opportunity to examine yourself and ask the Lord to increase the faith in your life. Lastly, number five, celebrate Christmas as a reminder of the hope of the gospel. While the birth of Christ by itself does not tell us the full story of the gospel, it does remind us some of the vital elements about it. So remember, the Christmas story is not the whole gospel. As a matter of fact, two of the four gospels don't even tell us the Christmas story. Mark and John both start off with Jesus, Mark starts off with Jesus' adult ministry. That's where it begins. He passes over it. John begins with the eternality of the Son of God. And he begins with theology that light came down into the darkness. The Word of God, the Logos of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it thrust Jesus right into his adult ministry. Doesn't even cover that. 
So Christmas is not the full gospel story, but it does remind us of some key elements of it. First of all, Christmas reminds us that the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. What do I mean by that? Christianity is chiefly a story of what God has done, not what we have done. What we have done is brought sin to the table. That's really all that we have done in the story of salvation. We have contributed the sin that made our salvation necessary. The gospel is the story of God. And Christmas is the story that the problem was so bad and God's love so great that God himself became human flesh. I say this quote so often, I probably always will every year, but famous medieval theologian Bernard of Clairvaux called the incarnation the kiss of God on the face of humanity. And I just, I always love that. It's the kiss of God on the face of humanity. God saying, I love you. And it's one thing to say I love you, right, to a loved one. To say it over the phone, or nowadays we have uh, FaceTime, so when somebody's you know, on the other side of the world or whatever, it, it is wonderful. Instead of sending a letter that won't get there for like two weeks or you get home before the letter gets back or something, you can actually FaceTime and that's wonderful. But nothing is quite the same as, as feeling that touch, that kiss. And that's what the incarnation of the Son of God is. It is God pressing His kiss on the face of humanity. That God loves us. It's also a reminder that we believe in a God who always, always, always keeps his promises. Though they may be delayed in our estimation, God always keeps his promises. He promised that one day the Messiah would come. He promised it not just in the lifetime before John the Baptist or Zacharias or Elizabeth. He promised it all the way back at the beginning of the Bible when he said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That promise that he made at the beginning of human history and for many times probably seemed like there was no promise or, or God's not able to bring it about or, or when is it going to happen? And here in the Christmas story, we're celebrating a God who keeps his promises. And just as sure as Jesus came once, because He came once, we can be reassured He's coming again. That Jesus is coming. That because of the historicity of His first coming, we can trust wholeheartedly that He is coming for us again. And of course, the Christmas story, without Jesus becoming human, there is no sacrifice for sins we would be left cut off from God if Jesus did not come into the world. If Jesus was not born of a woman. If He did not live a sinless and perfect life. If He did not perfectly fulfill all of God's law in our place, which we could not. And then He died on the cross to take our sins and to transfer the right of life which was promised to him in the covenant. Whosoever keeps this covenant perfectly gets life. Well, Jesus kept it perfectly, inherited life, and chose to give it away. He took our death on him and transferred his life 
to us. And that is what the Christmas story points to. It points to everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, the presence of God, that when God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, we can know it's a historical fact. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Let's practice these stories. Let us not only tell them, let us live them for Jesus' sake this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for the gift of Jesus. And even for those of us that have received Him, have truly and genuinely received Him, Yet, Lord, by Your Spirit and by Your grace, would You grant us the faith to confess we need to receive Him now more than ever. We need You, Jesus. We need Your presence. We need to feel the warmth of Your embrace. We need to experience You as the lover of our souls. We need to know You as the One who will never leave us nor forsake us. We need to know You as Healer, Sanctifier, Redeemer, and Coming King. We need to be healed by You. We need You to hear the voice of our prayers. We need You to examine our hearts and show us where we lack faith and where we may trust You even more fully with all of our hopes and dreams that we may put it in Jesus. Lord, we need Your help and ability to share this good news, to not keep it to ourselves, to not hide it under a basket, but to take the light of the true meaning of Christmas and to run with it. To let the light shine in the darkness. To allow the light to bring forth fruit for itself to attract those to the light that You are calling. We just pray now, Lord, as we begin this December and Christmas season, may we do so with a step of faith, every one of us, for the youngest to the oldest, let us all walk in a newness of life, embracing the God who has embraced us in Jesus Christ. We pray this now in His name. Amen.